You're listening to Politics Within Reason, the official podcast of the Party of Reason in Progress. Show the world you care about progress. Go ahead, give us a like or a share. And if you want to learn more or support your purpose, visit partyofreasonandprogress.org. Welcome to another episode of Politics Within Reason. I'm your host, Mike Ham, and tonight with me is co-host Sam Jennings. Hi, Sam. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, and especially tonight because we have a special guest with a special book, and we get to do another shilling for another <laughs> product, which I'm really excited by. And so you heard there, that is Cara Santa Maria, who is one of the co-authors of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. So Cara, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And so, Kara, you're actually a very busy person. You not only do the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast, you just did this giant book, which is, what, four, 500 pages long. It's quite, <laughs> it's quite the book. <laughs> Almost 500 pages, including the index. And you're even doing another book at the moment, too? Yeah, I'm... I take on too much. So, yeah. and that, I wouldn't even say that that's the the intensity of my career. So I do my own podcast, Talk Nerdy with Kara Santa Maria. I've been doing that for over four years now. I do it every week. I'm a co-host on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast. Um, so we do that weekly. I've been on that for maybe pushing four years now. Yes, we just wrote the book, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. I'm also the spokesperson for the new National Geographic Almanac 2019. And if that weren't enough, I am a correspondent on National Geographic's Explorer, which is a television show that's going to be coming out within, I think, the next month or two. And, hey, guess what? I'm going back to school for my PhD. Yeah, I was about to say, we're interrupting your homework time, aren't we? Which is really, really insane. Mike, what's wrong with me? And here's the thing, you guys. Mike knows this very well because we went to grad school That's together. right. So you never <laughs> stopped doing homework, I guess. Like so, so I stopped doing homework a long time ago, like ten years ago, and you're still doing it. And I, I find that quite interesting. Well, I stopped for ten years. So you got oh, your true. PhD right around the time I got my master's, right? What year was? What did you get your PhD? Uh, 2007. Yeah, me too. Okay, so I got my master's in 07. I took a year off. And then I another back. year, and then another yeah, year. Yeah, I started a PhD a year after, but I only did one year and I left because it was in New York at the time. I was super broke. I wasn't enjoying myself. It was the wrong lab, blah, blah, blah. Came to LA, lived here, worked as a full-time science communicator, and just now decided, yeah, maybe I'll go back. And, and full disclosure, Kara and I are also co-authors on a paper, which I, I don't even remember much about, but it was, it oh my was a gosh. long time ago. Yeah. Uh, I remember that. It's in the archive, right? It I is. definitely. Yeah, I know that um, I did not understand that paper. <laughs> but you did contribute toward it. You did actually do research to contribute towards it, and that's what matters. So you got a co-authorship on that paper. Yes, because it was more of like a computational neuroscience with a lot of physics. So you right. did um, – you and your co-authors were doing all this cool computational physics. I did all the wet lab work. So I prepped all the cell cultures and did all the biology necessary for you to be able to do this um, this computational physics right. work. So Right. I did some work. I yeah, did you did the work. You you were earned your spot. And, and hey, Sam, uh, I think I think Kara is the very first return guest we've ever had on Politics Within Reason. Yes, this is definitely true. Cool. So, so yeah, that's so pretty cool. Welcome back. Yeah, I, I'm sure I'm sure you can you can add that to your long list of accomplishments. I bet it means a lot. Yeah, it going does. pretty high up there. It is, guys. It's at the top. Yeah. Don't, don't <laughs> yes. Right. Well, well, I'll add it to your uh, to your Wikipedia page, right between uh, television host and uh, <laughs> podcaster. Oh yeah, yeah. We, well, you can move it up higher than that, I think, since <laughs> it's Wikipedia. You're free to do it. Yeah, 
Yeah, I don't have a Wikipedia page, and I, I think that's just fine. But I think it's really – it's actually cool to interview people with Wikipedia pages. It's it's pretty fascinating. I'm like, wow, that, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> Wikipedia is such a weird thing, right, because, like, anybody can edit it. I don't really understand the rules, but I do know that every so often – if I look at my wiki, things will be wrong on it. And then on my podcast, I'll be like, you know that I didn't actually, you know, get this degree there. I didn't actually, like my birthday was wrong for a oh, while. Wow. And then somebody will just like, like within a day, fix it. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. awesome. So you have minions out there who will do your work. <laughs> Apparently. Because I don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the book is The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe or this book, the book you're you're currently doing a tour on. Yes. And, and it kind of gets to that, right? Like this this issue with what should you believe and how skeptical should you be about things? And I, I thought that was kind of an interesting premise for a book. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, um, you know, sort of that if you give someone a fish versus if you teach them to fish thing. So it's less about like, this is real and this is not real. And listen to me because yeah. I'm an authority. It's, you know, it's about let's talk about how we think and let's get to the root of our cognitive biases and all the different ways that our brains can play tricks on us and sort of the landscape that we're living in. You know, we're in a time right now that I don't want to say globally we're in an anti-intellectual time because I don't think we are. I mean, if you were to ask Steven Pinker, and I think he's got, um, he's onto something here, we are kind of in a better position than we ever have been in the past. But because of that, some of the um, regression that we see at the federal level um, is so much more obvious to us. And so we're dealing with a lot of contradictory information. We're dealing, as we always have, with charlatans and hucksters and people who will really take advantage. And so the idea behind this book is sort of a, a primer, as Steve would say, I might say primer, primer. on yeah. skepticism. And it is easier than ever for them to spread their misinformation. Yeah, I mean, I think that it it's always been the case that there have been snake oil salesmen. Um, and so now we've got the Internet and at all corners of the Internet, you can find whatever you want to find. But historically, you had people walking through the towns trying to sell, you know, medical woo or pseudoscientific woo. And I think it's easier than ever now because everything's easier than ever. You can put stuff on the Internet. Doesn't mean everybody's going <laughs> to listen to you. Right. No, no. But – um, Alex Jones is selling more snake oil than anyone uh, did pre um, pre let's say pre television. I don't know, man. Like Mesmer did pretty well. You guys remember Mesmer? I think he probably yeah, made that's, bank. That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting question, right? Like, and and I think it comes to a really interesting political question, which is: Should there be censorship within things like YouTube and Facebook to help uh, keep people from? finding people like Alex Jones, right? Like, so for a long time, YouTube uh, would take you down the rabbit trail and you could end up on Alex Jones's site uh, just by, by following something that was skeptical and then mm -hmm. coming down and you end up in Alex Jones somehow, right? Like, so that was possible. And so, yeah, is, it's, it's, it's a tough question, right? Yeah. Because like what we're really talking about is first amendment issues and private speech, yeah. right? Is YouTube considered public speech? Is Facebook considered public speech? Because yes, these are private, but they're publicly traded. And in essence, they have become, um, 
you know, I think for all intents and purposes, public spheres. Like, I don't know if you watched the most recent John Oliver uh, desk piece on last week tonight, but he talked a lot about the uh, Rohingya people in Myanmar and how Facebook has really exacerbated the, um, shall we say, genocide, the ethnic right. cleansing that's happening within this country um, because inflammatory speech mm-hmm. is sort of rising to the top. And it's harder than ever for individuals to know whether they're reading something that's like really partisan or whether they're reading something that is more kind of um, vetted and centrist. And um, yeah, that's that's tough. We just don't have gatekeepers like we used to. It used to be you watch the nightly news and you're yeah. like, I trust Walter Cronkite. He seems like a trustworthy guy. And they had editorial policies to be as neutral as possible. And I do think we still have some bastions of that. You know, I do think the New York Times and the Washington Post work really hard to do that. But when you've got other people standing there saying, don't trust the media, it's all fake news, just trust what I tell you, I'm your president. That's the way it works. This kind of deification of authority figures and a a groundswell of dis, distrust towards um, the fifth estate, you know, the institution that's supposed to keep them in check. Uh, it's it's worrisome. Yeah, I agree. Yes. And, I said fifth. And, I meant fourth estate, but you know what? <laughs> there should <laughs> be a fifth estate. Question. It's time. The other interesting question with Facebook and social media, you know, we see Twitter and everything like that, is it's, it's, it's the sort of strange hybrid between – a, um, a information sharing medium and between a content publisher because they really do take the place of the daily news in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. So the question, you know, I tend to ask uh, myself is, you know, at what point does a social media platform have a responsibility to ensure that it's uh, distributing accurate content or do they not have any responsibility? And I don't think that we've adjudicated that as a society yet. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the place where we're sort of like hanging out, this like intermediate place, is that, you know, maybe these sites don't have a responsibility for fair and balanced publishing, but they do have a responsibility to um, sort of, you know, police hate speech or violence incitement. And that seems to be sort of the, the dividing line, don't you think? Like, it looks like most of these organizations have have within recent months worked very hard to make sure that their policies are that anybody who's inciting really divisive violence like neo-Nazism or anything like that gets taken down. But that, you know, whether it's right wing propaganda or left wing propaganda, like who are they to, like you said, adjudicate what's right? Yeah, that's not their job. Yes. Yeah, and and I think and that's a fair a position to take at the moment. Absolutely. I, I would agree with that. I mean, the thing is, I'm like a super lefty liberal, but at the same time, I'm a constitutionalist, you know, so it's always trying to, like, weigh those things together. Right. I will, you know, really defend somebody's right to have any opinion or viewpoint that they have. What bothers me is when, let's say, paid speech masquerades as editorial speech. So, you you know, you'll see these advertorial things that are really just like Alex Jones. Like, if you look at really his platform, it's all about selling, like, weird shit, like gold and, and like, 
MREs. Like he's really obsessed that the world is going to, well, he doesn't even think the world's going to end, but (laughs) he wants to like scare his listeners into thinking that the apocalypse is nice. So he wants to sell them a bunch of like nonsense stuff. Um, and that's basically his entire editorial policy is freaking people out so that they'll buy crap. And that is, you know, it's, and he he has incited violence. And I think that's, that's absolutely where I think is a great place to start drawing the line at this point in time. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's up to us to to teach media literacy because, like you said, there's a big difference between, like, media for entertainment purposes, which is what most media has become, media that sells ad space, and so they have to be, like, friendly to their advertisers, and that's where things get really confusing, and journalism, like, legitimate journalism. Alex Jones is not a journalist by any stretch. This podcast is not journalism. My podcast is not journalism. Like this is op-ed and that's an important thing to remember. You know, this is media. We're making content based on our um, views, our opinions, and it's well-researched and we're skeptical in it, but we don't have the same editorial policies as a journalist at the New York Times. No, I am not going out and I am not doing um, uh, primary journalism where I'm interviewing sources directly and I'm confirming um, uh, facts yeah, and we don't have a team of fact checkers and we yeah. don't have editors and, you know, and so it's hard because sometimes I do journalism like I work. Um, I historically did. I actually haven't worked with them in quite some time, but I worked on a show here in Los Angeles called SoCal Connected, which was like a magazine style uh, news and current affairs show on, on public television. And so in that capacity, I was a journalist. But then I turn around and do science communication. I'm not doing science journalism. I'm actually doing science advocacy work, which is a very different thing. I'm like, yay, science, science is awesome that's not journalism yeah no. so so the book really deals with uh it is literally a skeptic's guide to the universe right it, mm-hmm. it produces uh a lot of content that talks about how to be skeptical about certain things the types of cons you might run into in real life and and sort of how to mm-hmm. identify them uh one of the one of the things i thought was interesting was talking about being a skeptical parent right teaching your kids to be oh, yeah. skeptical and you know i've got two sons and so one of the things that kind of hit me, and should I teach them Santa Claus? I didn't, I didn't see an answer in there, right? So, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. what We're is... We're not going to tell you the answer. Yeah, I know. Um, don't tell me the answer. But, but I actually <laughs> had kind of a weird, you know, like, moment with that. I was like, wait, well, you know, um, my son is a little skeptical of Santa Claus, and I've lied about it, right? So what have, what have I taught him? You know, and it's, uh, when, when I was younger, my, we didn't have Santa Claus as kids because my parents were worried that if we learned that Santa Claus was, uh, wasn't real. We'd think Jesus wasn't real either. And so, so that was there, but you know, it was sort of well-reasoned, right? So what of if you, it was. your parents were like natural skeptics. Except yeah, that they, yeah. were they, were, they were natural skeptics up to a certain point and about exactly. certain things they were, you know, that you couldn't disprove in any way. And, uh, so I was raised in that kind of tradition. So it's kind of an interesting point. Like, you know, when the kid learns Santa Claus isn't real, is that a good lesson in skepticism, which is you should have been more skeptical or should you have been more honest ahead of time? That's hilarious. Did you hear my dog? Killer was like, that's a good question. Yeah, thanks, I'm Killer. i bark at that question. Actually, <laughs> no, that's, that's my boyfriend coming home from work. Killer feels the need to aggressively bark at the front door every uh, time yeah. somebody well, walks a- into <laughs> it. Um, no, I think that these are all good questions and I think that they're very personal, right? I don't yeah. – I don't have children. I am studying clinical psychology. So like I think about a lot of these things a lot, but Steve, the host of the skeptics guide and the, the lead author on the book and also all the other guys, Jay Novella, Bob Novella and Evan Bernstein, they all have kids and of varying ages. Like 
uh, Jay's kids are young like yours. Steve ki- Steve's kids are in high school and college. Um, and they all have, you know, their personal views about this. I might take it to a conversation about, let's say, death. So, you know, this is a subject area that I'm interested in my research. My, um, my PhD is really geared towards death and dying psychotherapy. Right. And when we talk about children and death, different people have different perspectives on at what point is it appropriate to teach your kids about death? At what point should we lie to them? At what yeah. point are the little things we say to make them feel better actually doing them more harm than good? And I think that oftentimes a good approach is to ask the kids what they think and kind of allow them to take the lead. So when a kid says, you know, Daddy, is Santa Claus real? Then you say, well, what do you think? Do you think Santa Claus is real? And it gives you a better idea of where their heads are at because they might be like, of course, how else would I get this present? (laughs) And you'd be like, that's interesting. You know, like that's an interesting uh, way that you're reasoning through that. And you can talk them through it. Other kids might be like, I don't know. It seems like unlikely that a guy that fat could go down the chimney. And you'd be like, oh, that's, you know, that's an interesting point. And you can kind of go with them and get into their own heads. And I think a lot of people are surprised when they ask their kids about death as opposed to just telling them things. Hmm. Because a common thing that kids do uh, that parents do with death is that when kids start to realize people die, like maybe grandma dies or uh, their pet dies and they're like, does everybody die? And a lot of times parents are like, only when you're old. Don't worry. Only like you'll young, young little boys and girls don't die. Um, that only happens to old people, which I think is super. Yeah, dangerous. that's 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 not good. Yeah, because my, my son is day, actually yeah. pretty obsessed with death at the moment. I mean, the, I think all kids How are. Old is he? He's six. He's six. Yeah, because one day he might have a classmate that passes away and it could be really traumatic for him if he has a false sense that that's never going to happen. Then again, some kids actually deal with a lot of anxiety that they themselves are going to die. And there may be some comforting that that needs to come in there. But a a big part of it is just like, I don't know, what do you think happens when (laughs) you die? Do you think you are going to die? Do you think mommy and daddy are going to die? And you'd be amazed by how sophisticated their understanding actually is. I read a a study once where a bunch of kids, and this was old, it was like an old existential psychotherapy study from like the 70s or something, where a bunch of kids were asked, you know, and kids had different experiences. Some some of them had lost their parents, some of them had never lost anybody. You know, what do you think happens when you die? Uh, you know, do you think that mommy, like where is mommy right now, blah, blah, blah. And they go, oh, mommy's buried under the ground. Well, is mommy, uh, you know, what? well, mommy's sleeping. Oh, okay, do you think she's going to wake up? No, it's a different kind of sleep where she's never mm. going to wake up. And it's like, what? Whoa, that's a pretty sophisticated answer for like a four-year-old. Yeah, right. So, you know, they do start to develop these kinds of understandings early. My thing is like, I don't know. I don't have kids, so who am I to say? But I don't I don't like the idea of lying to the kids. I think it's better to sort of like work with them at their level and see where they are and kind of maybe you can you can, I don't know, give give them a little bit of what they're already asking for. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. What do you do? I want to know what you do with your kid. Well, it's really, it's really interesting. You know, I don't have children myself, um, but uh, we, uh, we have uh, roommates, and uh, they have a four-year-old. Mm-hmm. And um, Silas, um, the four-year-old, um, announces loudly that he is dying whenever he doesn't get food that he doesn't uh, that, that he, uh, that he wants. <laughs> um, so I think he has a relatively uh, advanced uh, concept <laughs> of death. And has figured out how to use it to his advantage. <laughs> That's awesome. What about your kids, Mike? I mean, the yeah. So I actually have out, taken right? that that approach, right? And mm-hmm. he does it more with my wife than me, which is sort of weird. I don't know why he talks to her more about it than with me. Uh, but 
she does the same thing. She kind of goes, well, what do you think about it? And and she really tries to get his, you know, sense of reasoning. And I, I think, it, it, like you say, it's really surprising how sophisticated they are. And actually, I think your book makes that point too, which is that it's surprising how sophisticated your kids are if you just sit there and talk to them and you don't talk mm-hmm. down to them. And yeah, sometimes they're better scientists than yeah. we are. And well, I get it, though. The thing about Santa Claus is complicated because right. we live in a sort of Judeo-Christian society. Um, actually, I should just say we live in a Christian society. Like, it's not right. a theocracy completely, but, like, for all intents and purposes. Like, yeah, we have it's dominated by that. Yeah, right. Totally. And so um, – you know, parents are like, well, I don't want to like ruin it for all the other kids. And I think that's completely fair. You know, that's a conscientious and very empathetic viewpoint. Um, But at the same time, I understand that ethically they might not want to like imbue these ideas, like really lie to kids. So it's, it's a fine balance. And, and I've noted, I've known a lot of parents who, as their kids come to the determination on their own, they will go into that and say, you know, but some other kids, they believe and it makes them very happy to believe and blah, blah, blah. We wouldn't want to ruin that for them. Right. And so I think there's ways to like work with the kids too and make them feel very special for having that kind of special knowledge. Yeah. I mean, kids have like really active imaginations and it it makes them pretty happy to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I get why people do it. Um, and I don't know a better way to do it where you're, you're not lying to them about it, but you're, you know, you're being more open about it. So yeah, it's just a, it's just a personal choice and I'm yeah, okay totally. <laughs> I mean, it's just like for me, it's like religion, too. I know a lot of skeptics who are like super anti-religion and super and like I'm an atheist. Don't get me wrong. Like in the in the purest sense of the term, I am a non-believer. I am definitely a materialist. I do not believe in anything within a sort of supernatural. Right. You're not um, agnostic. You're not any of these yeah, things. No, yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm agnostic insofar as I believe everybody's agnostic because who the hell really well, knows? Yeah, like there's no way to be evidence based about this. So I believe that there there are theistic agnostics and atheistic agnostics and I'm an atheistic agnostic. But that said, like I don't I don't believe that you have to be an atheist to be a good skeptic. I think that that's kind of an unfair viewpoint. I've known plenty of people who are religious who are yeah. also you know like fully throw them their weight into science and they they're, they're just not fundamentalists. Right. Like that's different. It's yeah, for all their failings, the Catholic yeah. Church has a surprisingly good uh, science program in some areas, right? Like it's they, true, right? And so I've known people that like are morally against abortion, but scientifically pro like women's rights, and they like figure out where the line in the sand is yeah. and they square that circle. Or you know, people who are like. Um, you know, I believe in God and stuff, but like, no, the earth is not 6,000 years old because hello science. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> like so long as they're not like, yeah, and the earth is 6,000 years old. Cause then we're talking some massive cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was one of those people for a long time and it was, you know, looking when back, it's kind of crazy. What's that? Like how, old, how old were you when you realized? Oh, like, I was in my like late teens, like 17, 18. Like it was late. <laughs> but definitely by the time you were in grad school, you were like. Oh, yeah, by, by far. Yeah. And I was telling Did Steve you... about this. Like I actually mm-hmm. wanted to do an internship with a biology professor over the summer and he was doing evolution research. And I sent him an email and I was like, man, I don't believe in any of this. And he sent me a really good email back and I wish I still had it. It's in my old UNT email somewhere, which is mm-hmm. probably deleted. But um, and it it made me think like he didn't just like go, yeah, screw you. Right. He actually gave a really nice thoughtful response and, you know, moved on. 
Yeah, right. Because we're from Texas. Like it's really common there. We have a student in our lab who is working on her PhD, who is a Seventh Day Adventist, and believes that like Jesus put dinosaur bones in the ground to trick us. Right. Like ah, gotcha, atheist. <laughs> <laughs> so too, right? Because she was getting a neuroscience PhD. Like yeah. she, she had so much biology background, and there would definitely be times when we would be out at the bar, you know. At getting a, a drink with our professor and she would say certain things and our professor would be like la 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 I yep. can't hear you because <laughs> yeah. if I can hear you I can't graduate <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah that that was really interesting uh, I hope she's doing well it's been god it's been a while I know we're still friends on Facebook and she's a lovely woman but like hello cognitive dissonance yeah, yeah. Ah, gulf of cognitive dissonance and right and there's so much of it in the South. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if a fair amount of people who have, who have, you know, done an entire PhD and are now working professors have, like, either young Earth creationist views, flat earther views, like, some of these really fundamental views that fly in the face of legitimate science. Yeah. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I, I do want to mention, you know, I, and reinforce the point that you don't have to be an atheist to be a skeptic. You know, there is a lot of overlap. But, you know, I believe uh, Dr. Uh, Pamela Gay is, you know, one of the people I've listened to for a long time. And, uh, and she is uh, religious. Yeah, there's a fair amount of, you know, religious people within the skeptical movement. I feel bad because a lot of them, I think fly under the radar a little bit. Like a lot of them don't even feel really comfortable speaking up. They almost have the opposite problem of most most atheists in like the broader American society. And I'm like, yeah, hi, how about we not be as bad as the thing that we're failing (laughs) again? It's a bit frustrating. You know, whatever. If if religion does something for somebody, it doesn't do it for me. But if it does that thing for them that gives them yeah. psychological peace like why would i give what a it can shit? do like you came from a religious background and it did something Absolutely. for you for a while right like so it, it's not that you should ever think that things are permanent right you know you should no be- and Absolutely. It never actually it only really like fucked me up. Yeah. OK. Did, well, it did something it, for you, right? But I think it does a lot for, you know, members of my family. Um, right. For me, it was it was hard. I, I just couldn't. I was Mormon. I mean, it was a lot to take. Yeah, in. You were, you were in a very religious like I yeah. mean, I was an evangelical, which was was very religious, but not nearly on the level of Mormonism. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I bet you we could like we could like. <laughs> I don't know, compare trading cards or something. Yeah, like, pretty much. <laughs> and like, you're crazy and my crazy. They might be kind of matched, but in different yeah. places. Yeah, yeah. you guys yeah. probably didn't really believe in speaking in tongues and stuff, right? No, but, but we had uh, baptisms for yeah. the dead. Yeah, so. right, right. So, you I know. I grew up Quaker, so we believed in deciding everything by consensus. That's pretty crazy, too. So. What? You grew up Quaker? Cool. Yes, yes, believe it or not. Were you in the, like, in the Northeast? Uh, no, see, my, my mother is actually from um, uh, uh, Virginia and uh, mm-hmm. moved out west. Um, but um, there is a uh, – we went to a regular Christian church uh, growing up, but uh, she raised me, and we went to um, Friends General Conference, which is the national Quaker gathering every year in the Midwest. So um, it's funny they it was, call it general it was, conference. They call it that in the Mormon Church too. I think. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing with uh, with Quakers that I, I do want to uh, sh- to share that will tickle you is that there are multiple conferences in Quakerism, uh-huh. um, and united by a non-religious uh, structure to the faith, 
which has to do with, um, you know, uh, with pacifism and some, some other, um, views. Uh, yeah, but, good stuff in there. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the conferences in Quakerism, I mean, it runs all the way to evangelical Christianity and they all get together to, uh, confirm their pastors and they have to decide everything by consensus. So that is the humorous story that I wanted to <laughs> get across. And they actually did manage to confirm a, uh, an openly lesbian uh, pastor. Oh, that's cool. Uh, several years back. So. Oh, yeah, that's super cool. Yeah. So, nice. so I think my favorite sentence in the whole book is, conspiracies are the best friend of the con artist. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and, I, and I think we see that more and more in politics today, which is just that if you can make people – buy into your conspiracy theory, whether it's Alex Jones or whether it's uh, Glenn Beck or whoever it is, if you can get them to buy into your conspiracy theory, they won't trust anything else. And they are, they are pig headed and they will, they just won't move on that. And it's amazing. Like, it's just such a phenomenal thing to see uh, in real life. And I, I'm just blown away by it. Yeah, conspiracy theories are really interesting to me because I, there's so much psychology to unpack there. I actually just recently wrapped on um, kind of hosting, I guess you can call it, a short-form docu-series that was produced. I think it's going to be on Independent Lens, which is often carried by PBS, but I'm not, I don't think that it's, it's been fully um, decided like where it's going to air yet. Um, so I can't really make an announcement about like how to see it because it's not out yet, but it's, it's a short um, docu-series all about why people believe in conspiracy theories. And I think it's a really balanced and very fair hmm. docu-series with a lot of good research behind it because obviously they're, different people involved there are the people who are um who are putting out the conspiracy and then right. the people who are kind of receiving it and believing it and maybe perpetuating it and so when Santa we look Claus, at the people who, you know. yeah exactly <laughs> when we look at the people who are who are putting out the conspiracy theory we often talk about them in sort of more denigrating terms and i do uh, steve might disagree with me on this i'm not sure but i do think that it Context kind of does matter. So some people actually believe what they're selling mm -hmm. and some people mm -hmm. fully don't, right? And so there's a level of charlatanism. <laughs> yes. There's definitely a level of charlatanism yeah. to people who who know that they're bullshitting. They know that they're lying. And I think it's that's an important thing to remember. And then on the other side of that, I think a lot of people who believe in conspiracy theories are basically victims of charlatans. They're people yeah. who, because of you know, different reasons, whether it is some sort of priming or framing the way that they grew up, the things that they learned, the religiosity that they have, the um, historical disenfranchisement, for example. We talk a lot. We, there's a whole episode where we talk about um, the Tuskegee syphilis trials and we talk yeah. about conspiratorial thinking within African-American populations in the United States and especially conspiratorial thinking with regards to um you know, what some might call like a quote unquote medical industrial complex or something like that. And do we trust doctors? Do we trust vaccines? Do we trust certain things? And it's like, um, we, we use the term a lot, prudent, um, paranoia because you have good reason to yeah. not trust a doctor if historically, right. you know, a medical establishment, the NIH was actually, yeah. you know, 
Like testing. Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, I mean, they didn't actively infect with syphilis, but they withheld treatment, and they didn't tell them that they had syphilis. I mean, it was disgusting, and there are examples. Brazenly unethical. Brazenly, yeah, yeah, and it went on for way longer than it should have. I mean, it never should have even started, but it went on long after people knew better. And, I mean, we have examples of this in prison populations. We have examples of it in um, boarding schools where people were actively infected with things like, Mm. I think, herpes. I might be mixing that up with hepatitis, um, with skin infections in prison populations where vulnerable populations of individuals who are historically disenfranchised and did not have voices were you know, made to experience things that change their ability to trust authority. And right. so I think that a lot of times conspiratorial thinking can be born out of prudent paranoia, but then it goes too yeah. far. I mean, every good conspiracy has a, you know, decent grain of truth to it, right? Oh, like, yeah. I mean, like, that's what the definition of pseudoscience, right? Yeah. It's like, it sounds scientific <laughs> enough to be potentially true. So have you and guys so- thought about making a lot of money, like by selling stickers you can just put on that, that, fix things like like reading through your book the <laughs> uh-huh. the only point that i really saw is you can make a lot of money if you use these techniques uh for bad <laughs> yeah i mean right there's there's a fine line between being a magician and being a con artist right, <laughs> right. <laughs> like you know mentalism which is a form of magic that's like amazing to watch and it seems like people are legit reading audience yeah. members minds but actually they're just using really good Jeez. psychological techniques but you know historically do you remember that guy john edwards oh man yeah yeah the, other he was awesome to watch. In the universe what the biggest douche in the universe? Yeah. That may be a like, reference. There but... were two John Edwards, the one who had the TV show, right? And he would, like, tell people yeah. he could see dead relatives and stuff. Like, that. that is literally no different than mentalism, except that he is being horrifically unethical about how he uses yeah. it. Yeah, there's a whereas, great chapter in the, uh, yeah. in the book on that. Yeah, mentalism. Yeah, whereas a performer is just like – so there's a great um, documentary on Netflix about James Randi that I oh, highly yeah, recommend. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And they I've talk had to see him live. It's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And he is like, I think, a real hero of the skeptical movement because he's an incredible magician who could have very easily gone that route. But instead, he kind of used his powers for good and he debunked a lot of charlatans and hucksters famously on um, The Tonight Show when Johnny Carson was still hosting. yeah, so we do. We break the book up into different sections. We have, you know, core concepts that every skeptic should know. And these are sort of like sh- bite-sized chapters that go through everything from the Dunning-Kruger effect yeah. to pareidolia to uh, quantum woo to intelligent design. And then we go into our adventures in skepticism. So the cool thing is each of us got to write a different adventure in skepticism. And even Perry DeAngelis, who's one of the first hosts of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, who passed away um, within the first few years of the show, he had written enough that they were able to publish yeah. one of his adventures in skepticism as well. Mine takes- is actually... 313 pages to get to section two. I just want to point out. Yes. Well, section one is sort of like encyclopedic in a way. You can read it, you know, cover to cover, or you can just go, I want to learn a little about clever hands and then look that up. Yeah. Uh, I wrote about Hollywood because, of course, I live in Hollywood, or I right. did. I live in Los Feliz now, but it's all L.A., and I wrote about all the you – know, it's sort of an amalgamation of a lot of people I know and, like, the weird stuff that they do that's super pseudoscientific. And, and to prove, uh, like, how bad you are at, like, doing things, like, as soon as I got the book, I looked through and I looked at all the chapter names and I texted Karen. And I was like, did you write this chapter? Did you write this <laughs> chapter? I got zero of them wrong. So yeah, you're right. <laughs> and, and, I, and I guessed quite a few, and so – it's just 
the the book is a good reminder that you know these things that you like think that you know you should be skeptical about right you should really be skeptical about absolutely like you know i think it's it's good to have confidence but at the same right. you know that we say like it's that balance being a good scientist is having a really good balance between skepticism and open mindedness and those two things a lot of people talk about them like they are opposites and they're just not you can be an open minded skeptic yes. that's really important and i don't like it when people use the argument of open mindedness to try and combat skepticism like oh well you're just not open minded enough it's like no, I'm very open-minded. The evidence is in, and that thing you're talking about has been disproven. Yeah, that, that's that's what Facebook has been really good for, right? Realizing just like how how crazy some of these things are. Like you're just like, wow, you actually really believe that? That's, that's or how prevalent else. they are. Yeah, things that we sometimes when you're in the skeptical movement or you've been living your life as a skeptical mm -hmm. for a long time, you start to forget you know you surround yourself with like-minded people that's what people do so it's it's common that somebody who's very religious in a very particular denomination most of their friends are going to be in that denomination most of my friends happen to be non-believers but i do have a fair amount of believer friends as well most of my friends happen to be scientists those just tend to be the people that i gravitate towards and so you start to forget that like oh yeah my yeah. dad and like creationism <laughs> right. or yeah, like mine you know, too. that person thinks that if they put like a crystal on their forehead that like it'll make them heal faster after a cold right it's like Ugh. or if you oh, cut yeah. taxes you'll generate more government government revenue. exactly <laughs> yeah it's never happened yeah. before but it totally will happen this time it, this Just time bring that yeah. yeah so you know master reagan told me and i believe him right everything he taught me <laughs> yeah so this is a real problem, right? Like, you can't get elect elected by being a skeptic, right? Like that—that's not a thing that like people care about. Like, one of the things I've realized this this election cycle, especially, is that people aren't going to elect you because you're a scientist, right? They—they they don't really give a crap about that, right? They—they they want to kind of know what you're doing for me and like how do I emotionally connect with you, and so it makes it really hard to like get people who are skeptical uh, into government, and I, and I think. The charlatan aspect really does apply to Congress. I think people are fully aware that cutting taxes does not increase revenue, right? They, they're they smarter than that. Like, these are not dumb people. Some of them. <laughs> okay, yeah, some of them. Yeah, let's, let's qualify that. Okay. Yeah. There's a few. But I, I think on the, on the whole, most the, the majority probably know that, right? The majority of people who voted for it probably know that. But they have another ideological reason to do it. And... So, so there's a dishonesty problem, right? Where people can just say, hey, uh, I'm doing it for this reason, but that's not really the reason they're doing it. It's just the one that sounds good. Um, you know, I don't Absolutely. know if there's an answer to that, right? Their motivation is to get elected. Yes. Ultimately, in politics, unfortunately, the way that politics sort of the game is played in our country because of a lot of different factors, the fact that voting is not mandatory, yeah, it's, it's actually not... made more difficult to vote for certain people, um, generally disenfranchised people who may be more likely to vote uh along a more progressive line. Um, but regardless of that vote, you know, not everybody within the populace votes. If we did, we would have a very different game yeah. that's played. And, and also no the way we vote. We did a really cool interview recently with mm -hmm. uh, some folks who were uh, trying to do approval voting, which is where you vote for everybody you like. Mm -hmm. And you don't rank them. You just actually say, oh, these people are good. 
And uh, the current method. The most people that are the most good are the ones that win. Yeah, in theory, right? And so Mm -hmm. right now we don't have a good way for third parties to uh, make any progress because. Oh, that's absolutely true. Because it's almost impossible. Yeah, voting for third party is basically throwing away your vote. Uh, So if you do approval voting, you can say, well, okay, I I don't mind if the Republican wins, but I'll also vote Libertarian or something like that because I really hope everybody likes Libertarian or whatever it is you're doing. Absolutely. So yeah, the the the. The two-party system is really problematic. The fact yep. that we have no um, – the fact that we desperately need campaign finance reform. Like all of these things together feed into a culture where it's less about governing and it's more about getting elected yes, and doing right. everything you can do to get elected. The minute they're in office, especially Congress because their terms are so short, yeah, they, they are – they campaign all the time. Yeah. They're basically just campaigning from the day they get into office and even uh, the executive, that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Like a big part of their their job is just campaigning, campaigning, campaigning. And so if you're just trying to get somebody to vote for you, of course you're going to do and say whatever <laughs> it takes to get them to right. vote for you. Like it's sort of a natural outcome of the way that our system right. runs. Yeah, it's, In it's, other democratic yeah. countries, not all of them, but some of them, they have mandatory voting. They are only allowed to campaign for, you know, a short period of time and they're not allowed to take public money. Well, if just changing those three things would make a massive impact on who gets elected in our country. Yeah, I really do like the short campaign concept. I think that's Mm -hmm. a fantastic idea. Get to work and, you know, you can campaign for a little bit, but don't spend a bunch of money and see what happens. And then, yeah, I think it makes with approval voting. I think you'd have a good, a nice change, but. Or something. Or, or something. something. Yeah. Or anything. I mean, anything, right. It's almost the worst possible system you could imagine if you want a, a republic. Well, yeah, because what ends up, who ends up rising to the top are the most charismatic people who will tell you what you want to hear. Right. Like yeah. that's going to be who wins. And so I think that's one thing that we're sort of learning in science communication is that it's not always about the hard truth and it's definitely not about proving that you're right. It's much more about taking your message and then utilizing the tools that we've learned from marketing and utilizing the tools that we've learned from um, psychology to try to appeal to people at the level that it makes the most sense to appeal to them, but still maintaining, you know, some sort of ethical um, boundary where you say, okay, I'm, interested as a science communicator in improving science literacy, but I'm going to try my best to make science fun or to make it funny or to appeal to somebody emotionally. And I'm not going to offend them. And I'm not going to tell them they're wrong in an effort to tell them why this other thing is right. I'm going to figure out how to be very improv-y and go, yes, and, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, the first line in the book is, you know, that that comes after a quote is Spock lied to me. And I think that's kind Uh of interesting, right? It's like, how do you balance that, that, you know, being entertaining with uh, factual, being factual. Oh my God, Mike, it's the story of my life working in television. <laughs> you it is so difficult to sell shows that are, you know, like I'm super interested in a lot of different concepts, skepticism, psychom, more recently death and dying. And I can tell you that there are so many different shows that I've pitched, so many different shows that I've developed where like we're working, we're working. And then the network execs are like, yeah. And so what, but what about ghosts? And you're yeah, like, right. <laughs> like I, I tried to sell a dinosaur show once and we had all these great episodes and it was really good and it was super evidence based. And, and a network executive legitimately asked, why don't we do an episode on like whether or not there is 
an extant, of course they didn't use the word extant, but whether or not <laughs> there is a dinosaur still living in the Amazon jungle. And I was but like, it is. it's called a chicken. Yeah, I was yeah. like, what are you talking about? Yeah, like, and if you've ever been fishing, there's some, there's some pretty crazy, crazy <laughs> stuff still out there. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, right. This is, this is the problem, right? Like, what is it that attracts attention, but is also factual? And, and to that end, actually, like, I think the book's interesting. Um, it really is kind of encyclopedic in a way. So like what, what, uh, Douglas Adams did, right? Like he didn't publish the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, right? Like he published mm-hmm. a story revolving around it. And mm-hmm. it does feel like this would be an interesting show, like referencing the skeptic's guide to the universe. But you know, I don't know anything about, like, I, I don't have anything further developed beyond that. Right. But, yeah. but which, which is obviously the most important part. Like I got this great <laughs> idea, Kara, you're going to love it. It's going to be so cool. You're going to use your book and I don't know what you can do with it, but you're going to like, do something. That's the funny thing too. That's what so many show pitches are. It's like, yeah. it's this book. Let's it's make it book. into a show. And yeah. it's like, but what's the show? And that's really the hard thing, yeah. right? It's like, what's the narrative? What are we watching? Why is this appealing to people? How is it entertaining them? How is yeah. it holding them but in? Especially because within it, politics. I think people really are so like riveted to politics today. Like, I think you could actually do a pretty interesting, uh, you know, short production on, here's the fallacy being used right here. And, you know, these people are falling victim to this, right? You know, it's kind of, it's oh, just yeah. a, it's like PolitiFact, right? Yeah. Right? And like, so we're going to go to the skeptics guide and we're look, this is what they're using to try and manipulate you. Yada, yada. Right. I think that's, I think it's pretty interesting because the stories themselves are really fascinating. Um, but they don't get yeah, a we, deep dive. We, yeah, we have a store, uh, we have a segment on the podcast called, um, it's it's not a, an every week segment. It's like a an occasional segment called Name That Logical Fallacy. Oh, yeah, and so right. yeah, if there's like a, a famously like a p- politician argues something on the uh, on the floor or if like a reader writes in and says, you know, I saw this post going around Facebook, yeah. then we'll go through and pick out all the different informal logical fallacies that yeah. the author is making to try to yeah, make their argument. Um, and there's a lot of stuff we do like that. Like we cover different science story. If you've never listened to the skeptics guide, there's five of us. We each do a different science story each week. I do a what's the word, which is like a cool sciencey word that maybe you've come across in your readings, but don't know what it means and do a deep dive on the etymology. Steve has a great segment called science or fiction where he picks yeah. three new stories, two are fake, uh, sorry, two are real, one's fake. And we all have to guess. And he like constantly stumps us. And then there's other segments, uh, Jay does Who's That Noisy? It's a Weird Noise. We all try to guess what it is. Sometimes Bob will do Forgotten Superhero of Science, which is often a woman. Um, it's somebody who's been historically disenfranchised, who has contributed a lot to science. And Evan reads a quote at the end of the show. It's a lot of fun. It's It's got a format, so it feels um, familiar. People keep coming back to it. And gosh, I think it's been on the air for like, what, 13 <laughs> years? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I have been listening since t- 2008. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah, Sam, Sam is one of your original listeners there. Oh, gee. Well, yes, I, I I have been listening since before Kara was even on the show. Oh, yeah, I've, I've only been on the show a few years. Um, yeah, it goes back. So they you were... didn't ruin it, Kara. Good job. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, he's still listening. That's good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that, no, it's a really good show. Thank so. you, thank you. And yeah, I mean, it was, um, it's, it's, it's been around since like the early podcast days, which is yeah. pretty cool that the guys, and I don't think they've ever missed a week, which is also 
Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Like even my my personal show, I take off two weeks every winter, like for kind of the winter break, um, to to be able to take a little bit of time, and also listenership goes way down. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> we, was, we take off uh, a month at a time periodically, so it happens. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not cool. not going to be upset about that. Sometimes it's just too much when you do a politics show. So. Yeah, well, it's really hard to keep up these lot. days. Yeah. Oh, gosh. But yeah, podcasting is a lot. You know, it's like for some people, it's their full time job. And it's it's an additional additional thing that we do on top of our actual jobs. And right. It takes time and money. And, and you know, sometimes it's um it's it's a decision to make how how formatted you want to be and how much you want to do it. Um, But I like it because it's independent, independent content, uh, independent content, which is important now that we have sort of so many choices is that we have to figure out who's trustworthy and then, you know, really stick with those programs that, that are entertaining, that are informative and that we really care about. Right. And so with that, you should, you should buy the skeptics guide to the universe to help support that program that's been on. Yes. October 2nd. October 2nd is the release date. Mm -hmm. And you guys are going on a book signing tour too, right? We are. I'm actually leaving. Um, so we're recording this Wednesday, September 26th. I'm leaving in about a week and a half to go to the East Coast to do some um, dates with the guys uh, in New York and Connecticut. We're doing New York Comic Con and a few other dates. And then we go to the UK and we're going to be at QED in Manchester. We're going to go to Edinburgh and we're going to go to London and I think Cambridge and do some cool stuff there. A um, lot, a lot. A lot. A lot. <laughs> and, and in full yeah. disclosure, so Sam and I were each sent a copy of the book, the pre-book. Yeah. Uh, Sam, what happened to your book? Um, it was actually uh, stolen in an airport. <gasps> wow. It's that good. So somebody got a uh, pre-sale copy. I have since uh, ordered a, a copy an uh, from Amazon. But, oh, so uh, yes. someone got but a galley because they stole it yeah, in the airport. Yeah, they stole a galley. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I'm ordering one of your pre-signed ones from New York. Uh, because, uh, you know, I don't want this for free. I think it's a really good book. So both Sam and so, I did get a free book, but we are paying for it. So that is the full oh, disclosure that means, there. That means a See, lot. I ordered it from Amazon because I you wanted to You should order it from uh, The Strand in New York. Yeah, if you ordered from The Strand, you can get a copy. Yeah. If they're still available, that's signed There's by other, all five of us. Well, there were some available. Maybe not anymore. Yeah, we did. <laughs> well, we did I'll tell you what. If- if I ever meet any of you in person, I'll ask for a signature. Absolutely. Go. We did a big signing for Barnes & Noble, I think like 1,700 pages, and they're called Pastin. So we, we signed all the pages in advance, and then they like somehow fuse them into the book. Um, but I think they sold out at Barnes & Noble, so we did a deal with The Strand in New York. So while I'm there, like I said, I'm, I'm headed there in about a week and a half. We're going to be you know, cramping up our hands signing <laughs> copies, and then they're going to go out to all of yeah. you guys. So um, so yeah, now's your chance. If they haven't sold out yet definitely check that out to get a a signed copy yeah so anyway so kara thank you for joining us and you can find kara on all kinds of podcasts including talk nerdy skeptics guide of the universe uh old episodes of the joe rogan show i think and uh, yeah yeah and so i've just launched um a new store to help support so i have a Mm. patreon patreon.com slash talk nerdy um but i also just launched a new web store to help support the show and you can find it by just going to talk nerdy merch.com i actually Uh, have a bookmark from your uh from your store which i used to read your book which was a little bit of cross promotion there (laughs) i love that yeah (laughs) and then also i finally sucked it up and spent 
a lot of money to buy the URL talknerdy.com. Oh, so now yeah. you can either go to carasantamaria.com or to talknerdy.com. They'll, it'll redirect you and you can, um, you can see the podcast there. Okay. Thank you so much, Kara, for your time. Thank you. So long and thanks for all the science. That's right. <laughs> Good night. Show the world you care about progress. Go ahead. Give us a like or a share. And if you want to learn more or support your purpose, visit partyofreasonandprogress.org.